Merry Christmas from Night Cheese. This is Steven. And I'm Tim. And I'm Jared. And thanks for joining us this holiday week. I also want to retroactively thank you for joining us for our last week's The Incredible Kulk as we talked about Home Alone 1 and 2. And uh, I'm only going to say this episode title once, so uh, everybody listen closely. We'd like to welcome you to this week's episode up on the rooftop, guns ablaze, down swings good old John McClane. Um, we're going to do a little bit one take, everybody. Do it live. That's a broadcasting degree at work. Um, and a little bit of Coke Zero. Um, anyway, so we are uh, going to do a little bit of a repeat ourselves from what we did last week with the format of Home Alone 1 and 2. We are going to tackle the oft-debated Christmas movie, Die Hard, both one and two. Um, I think that is a topic that will come up. We could probably even talk about that right out of the gate, you guys. Um, if, if 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 we're to believe social media, uh, boy, that that even saying that sentence out loud is is a is a bit of a loaded statement. Um, that there's there's a lot of debate, almost as much debate as to whether or not Mary knew that Jesus was all the things in the Christmas song of the title. Um, whether or not, sorry, I have a real axe to grind with that, and I'm not going to get on that topic because I'm bad <laughs> enough, bad enough as it is, um, <laughs> staying on topic in our episodes lately. So lately, translated always. Um, Die Hard, Tim, do you consider Die Hard? And at least, and I mean, listen, the the setting of Die Hard Two is 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 equally similar to that of the first Die Hard. Mm-hmm. So so I could ask holistically, do yeah. you consider the first two Die Hard movies Christmas movies, yes or no? Well not yes or no. I mean give all the explanation you want. I, you, you know, I I don't I don't get, you know I'm not a die hard, you know, pro or against, but I would say, you know, why not? Let's make it a Christmas film. Let's go for all it. Right. Jared <laughs> Where do you weigh in on the is a diehard Christmas film debate? You know, I, it's not a hill that I'm interested in dying yeah. on or or a giant tower or an airport. Either <laughs> it's one. It's not a Nakatomi um, Plaza you're willing to die it's on. It's not a Nakatomi <laughs> Plaza that I'm looking to die on, no. Um, I, for me, I think it, for all that we're going to talk about, I think mm-hmm. in terms of the second, the, the sequel being a lesser version of the first, mm-hmm. which is sort of some deja vu i will say the one thing for it is that it kind of feels a little bit more like a christmas movie to me because i associate travel with christmas more than an office party especially like the office party the way that was set up it just so so the second one that is the one thing it has going for me is it feels slightly more like a christmas movie but Yeah. yeah for for me i think I think they could have probably made it feel like a Christmas movie for me if they had like a shot at the end of of Bruce Willis uh, in the first one, like giving the bear to his kids or something, yeah. you know, like some sort of Christmas reunion mm-hmm. thing. Um, but yeah, without like a- that, like it, it doesn't really ring to me as mm-hmm. a as a Christmas movie. Either yeah. One, really. yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with you too, in the sense of, I don't really have a passionate opinion about it. Um, but if you're going to back me in a corner to have an opinion about it, I, I, I'm going to be splitting hairs here, but I'm going to lean towards no. Um, mm-hmm. just because if you were to ask me, Steven, what is a Christmas movie? 
I would, I would think of a movie that's kind of about like Christmas is almost a character in the movie. Mm, you know what yeah. I mean? Like Home Alone, A Christmas Story, Elf. Uh, you know, we could keep going. Christmas Vacation. Like you mm-hmm. know, it, cr- Christmas is almost the central figure of of mm-hmm. the story. Yeah. And this Christmas is really just a setting in these mm-hmm. films. If yeah. anything, it's just winter uh, in a, in, a, in, a, in some senses. <laughs> Like, yeah. but you know, right. it, it really treads that line of really just being films that happen in the wintertime, really close to Christmas. Mm-hmm. And the first one, the first Die Hard in particular, I lean, I'm, I'm more generous to considering a Christmas movie because it, because, because they take the, um, intentional choice of putting, well, I guess they did this in the second one too. I don't remember, but, but putting the closing credits over a Christmas song. Mm, yeah. Um, so that's kind of like almost their little fading stamp to say, yeah. Oh yeah, it's a Christmas movie. But yeah. I mean, like yeah, is gremlins yeah. a Christmas movie? <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, maybe yeah. more so mm. you know, is Edward Scissorhands I, a Christmas movie. You know, I would say gremlins more so because yeah. you oh, even yeah. get, I mean, like it's like a really disturbing Christmas movie, but sure. I, the thing that stands out to me about that is like the, the girlfriend's you know story about her dad and you know and the the chimney and yeah 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 so not all the best reasons but definitely more qualifications right right yeah well um (laughs) nevertheless regarding um our stances or or um lack of commitment to stances on Die Hard being a Christmas movie, uh, I think we can all agree the first one is, is a great action film. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I hope we're all in agreement. Otherwise, uh, this is going to be a really entertaining episode. Um, <laughs> but um, so, yeah, Die Hard came out, the, the, the first film in 1988, uh, directed by John McTiernan, who um, prior to Die Hard had just come off of Predator, um, the Arnold Schwarzenegger film. He also went on to direct uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Last Action Hero. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, in my opinion, the only other really good Die Hard film, Die Hard with a Vengeance, the one with Samuel L. Jackson. And Jared, you may remember this film the, the, from the early 2000s with John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson, Basic. He uh, yes. directed that film as well um, when John Travolta was really sinking his teeth into chewing the scenery uh and in action films um it's 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 not a good film uh to, to everybody who's listening but it was kind of an inside joke between jared myself and a couple other mutual friends of ours uh just some of the performances in that film are really hammy so uh mctiernan has a real like go big or go home resume um it seems uh because both of those diehard films and predator are are top tier um action films um, and then some of the others are a little bit uh, stinkers. So, I mean, you know, he he goes for it. I'll give him that. So um, fun fact, uh, we were joking before we started the episode that this was going to be kind of a meta experience in that last week when we talked about Home Alone 1 and 2, we were talking about this notion of, hey, the first film broke a lot of new ground and, it, you know, it did all this uh, interesting stuff. And then the second film was this lazy sequel. And here we are kind of doing the same thing because Die Hard is in a similar boat uh, as the Homeland films are. Um, and to add to that, um, there was a document, uh, to call it a documentary series, is a little uh, 
uh, gracious, um, on Netflix called The Movies That Made Us. And um, there is also, there was, I mentioned last week, there was an episode that they did on Home Alone that provided a lot of supplementary material we discussed last week. Well, they also did an episode on the first Die Hard film, which was really uh, entertaining as well. So that's available on Netflix. By the way, before I forget, Die Hard and Die Hard 2. Actually, I I think maybe the entire Die Hard franchise, but definitely the first two mm-hmm. are available on HBO Max. Um, so if you have a subscription to that, uh, definitely at least go check out Die Hard. Um, so uh, fun story. Um, so Die Hard was based off of a Roderick Thorpe novel called Nothing Lasts Forever. Um, and Roderick Thorpe, uh, th- this novel, Nothing Lasts Forever, was a sequel Um or, or a follow-up, at least, about this detective who, who was not named John McClane, but obviously, you know, it's the it, it's the character though. Um, they they renamed him um, for for the film, but the previous film, previous novel, sorry, in the story was also adapted into a film, and I want to say it was like maybe in the '60s or '70s, called The Detective, and it starred Frank Sinatra, and apparently that was like a really big deal. I don't know how big, you know, comparatively speaking to box offices and stuff now, but enough of a big deal that when the novel of Nothing Lasts Forever came out and the attempts to turn it into a film were being done, Frank Sinatra apparently contractually had first crack at the starring role, um, which should tell you how long it took Hollywood to turn this into a film Um, because he was still alive and kicking when Die Hard rolled around. So they had to actually offer him the role of John McClane before they got <laughs> oh, to Bruce wow. Willis. <laughs> Thankfully, he passed. Um, he was he had moved on to other things at that point in his career. So uh, we did not get Die Hard with Frank Sinatra. Um, but they were still looking for other kind of grizzled old actors at that point because in the novel um the detective is like 60 years old and and um and it's not his wife that he's trying to say but his daughter um and so it is a uh, so there's a, a few wrinkles there in the uh in the story that get changed around so um one of the big uh, a big catalyst in changing um the the crux of the story in terms of the relationship at least um, came from Jeb, I think Jeb Stewart, one of the writers of the screenplay. And he told this story about how he got into an argument with his wife and stormed out of the house and was sp- speeding down the freeway. And he was so mad. And he said, as soon as he left, he like almost immediately regretted leaving the way that he did. And he wanted to apologize to his wife. Well, he was so wrapped up in his own mind, he did not notice that he was headed into an oncoming refrigerator box on the freeway. And said, like, my life flashed before my eyes. I thought I was going to die. And thankfully, the box was empty. Um, So, you know, he's like, all this traffic is weaving around it. And I wasn't paying attention because I was in my own head. And uh, thankfully, the box was empty. And he's like, well, that is my story. It's like, it's a man who left things bad with his wife. Mm -hmm. And he wants to go make them right. Mm -hmm. Um, And he that that was his idea to adapt the screenplay to the backdrop to, you know, to this new backdrop as to why uh, John McClane's there with his, with his wife instead of, you know, instead of his daughter. So um, cast, uh, yeah, Bruce Willis, which we, we will get to, uh, we'll, we'll talk about Bruce for a while. Um, Alan Rickman in his feature film debut. Um, I had no idea until I yeah, read that. That's amazing. Was, I mean, a celebrated Broadway actor. 
uh, you know, for, for years, apparently at this point, I, I believe that for sure. Um, uh, with a man of his, uh, you know, uh, dramatic talents, but his first Hollywood film, uh, comes to out swinging right out of the gates with Die Hard. Uh, Bonnie Bedelia, um, who I only knew from, uh, the TV series Parenthood. Uh, she was mm-hmm. the matriarch of Parenthood. She's obviously much younger, uh, in this film. Um, and then, uh, Carl Winslow himself, Reginald mm-hmm. Bell Johnson, um, which I've got to wonder if this film right. did anything to audition him for Family Matters. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I want to say this film probably predated Family Matters by maybe a year, year and a half. Yeah. So, because because mm-hmm. uh, Family Matters would have started in the early '90s, um, and this was 1988. So who knows? Um, Paul Gleason, uh, Paul Gleason, and William Atherton. They're they're like the tag team champions of '80s jerks. Um, uh, in, in terms of 80s film antagonists, Paul Gleason, uh, known as the principal from The Breakfast Club, if you've ever seen that, and many other films. Oh, yeah. And William Atherton, man, he is he is the 80s heel to all mo- 80s movie heels. Like uh, also in, uh, I'm sure he's been in many films, but the, probably the most recognizable one is uh, Ghostbusters. He was, I would yeah. say, at least the human antagonist in that film, mm-hmm. um, the the city the city official who uh, Bill Murray had some comedic yet choice words for that I will not repeat here. Um, <laughs> also, um, this ca- this supporting cast, when we get into like the, uh, you know, Alan Rickman's gang and some of the cops and FBI agents, reads like a who's who of 80s character actors to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we have, yeah. So, um, so first of all, Alexander Godunov, which um, he... I didn't know this until I watched the uh, movies that made us episode, but he was a um, he was a ballet dancer. He's a Russian ballet dancer, and this was the long blonde haired, you know, um, henchman wow. of Alan Rickman's. Probably the most <clears throat> physically imposing of all of them, mm-hmm. and he's a ballet he's a ballet dancer by trade, which obviously. I mean, that does explain the athleticism, but mm-hmm. not necessarily something I would have guessed. Uh, Clarence Gilliard Jr., uh, you might know him from oh, yeah. Top Gun, from Walker, Texas Ranger. Yes, that was um, what I was thinking of. He was a vet on Walker, Texas yes. Ranger. Yep. Yeah. And he is, uh, he's their their tech guy. Um, Al, Le- Al Le- Long, I don't know if it's Long, Leong. Um, in my heart, I remember him as one of the like chief baddies of the wing kong from uh big trouble in little china um basically if you needed an evil ninja uh in the 80s he was somehow involved in the gang mm-hmm. um and he's involved in rickman's <laughs> game as well and robert dobby uh one of the fratellis he was a bond villain uh in the 80s i believe as well uh he plays an fbi agent and uh so so anyway just a fantastic cast with with so many good um pieces like fitting into one puzzle you know Mm. um and if and if you put this in context it's it's easy to look at this in 2020 especially if you were not uh alive or of age when this came out i mean i was just a child when this came out myself but getting to see some of this other stuff um it's really interesting to look at this cast in the context of when it was made and how it really is a bunch of puzzle pieces it's almost like a uh uh like one of those early new england patriots teams where there's like no superstar and like there's a bunch of utility Mm. players but they all work so well together it creates this big thing there's no a there's really not an a-lister in the bunch at this point 
this film like kind of turns Bruce Willis into an A-lister, but he was not a popular choice. I mean, he was like, you know, Robert Pattinson as Batman um, or even Ben Affleck as Batman. I guess you can just always go to Batman. I guess if you want to give an example of, um, of, of soundly rejected casting choices that end up turning out. Okay. Um, but uh, he was at the time a very limited uh, film star. I think he'd only done like romantic comedies, maybe, or just like uh, was, when, when, when was Moonlighting? Uh, well, so Moonlighting, the TV series was was oh, parallel yeah. with this. Okay. Um, okay. So when the first trailers hit, um, they said this in the documentary that when they saw his face, crowds either booed or laughed. Huh. Um, they did not respond well um or appropriately to um weird willis as an it's crazy to imagine back in a day when when fans had strong reactions to castings yeah yeah no we've evolved so much that's (laughs) so far beyond that yeah yeah (laughs) um by the way if we didn't mention uh james gunn's suicide squad is coming next year to warner brothers uh uh hbo max Uh, anyway so (laughs) Yeah, like, um, <laughs> uh, not taken well. He was just, I, I'm trying to, exp- try to, try to explain to our listeners, like, who didn't know what Moonlighting was, mm. like, what that would be like. Are there any shows like that now? Like, like it, it'd be like, oh, no, even that's a dated reference now. I don't yeah. know any current. I, I'm already, like, 10 years old on this. I'm think- I was thinking of, like, Patrick Dempsey from Grey's Anatomy, you know? But he hasn't been on that show in a number of years either. But it'd be yeah. like seeing him in, you know, in Taken or something. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. it's just like, uh, okay, right? You know. Um. Anyway, so it's yeah, it, it was it was not greatly received. Um, um, his his uh, his casting there. Um, now he um, but he, and he also apparently caused a little bit of a stir. His agent got him this huge contract for the movie to get paid like four or five million dollars for the film which in 88 was a big deal and also given his perception as an action star uh, another big deal because he didn't he wasn't one um and their rationale was if this movie tanks bruce's movie career is over Mm. like because he has not had any home runs yet and it might even ruin his moonlighting kick you know he's Mm. so like so the, it was like this mutual risk between the movie studio and Bruce, at least according to, you know, people. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, big hit, obviously. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes has an agreement with the users and the critics. They both scored it 94%. Um, IMDb uh, scores it as an 8.2, and it actually makes the top 250, that number 125. Um, oh. I I think it was no it's not mctiernan it's rennie harlan when we get to uh when we get to die hard too uh fun fact rennie harlan apparently is one of only one of two hollywood directors that has films in both the imdb top 250 and bottom 250 um so mm. worth noting uh at some point um so the first die hard actually got four academy award nominations um didn't win any of them and they were all technical categories um it it was nominated for best sound but it lost to a film called bird uh, which i've never heard of um, before or since and then after that 
it was nominated for film editing and both sound and visual effects. So those three awards, but it lost all three of those to, let's be honest, a very worthy opponent and who framed Roger Rabbit. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a, that was a once in a lifetime, you know, visual effects, uh, situation. So, um, no, no, no problems there. Now I will say something that I did, did pick up on here though, that was, um, surprising, um, uh, about Die Hard and the Die Hard franchise of all films. Um, both Die Hard 1 and 2 were nominated at the um, Japanese Academy Awards for Best Foreign Language Film. Interesting. Wow. Um, and the first film actually won. It won Best Foreign Language Film at the awards of the Japanese Academy. So uh, um, I didn't, first of all, didn't even know that was a thing. Um, but also, Die Hard being a foreign, considering Die Hard a foreign language film, I mean, I guess it, you know, having watched it on TBS a few times growing up, uh, certainly the, the dubbing and the profanity <laughs> um, supplementing uh, yeah. certainly seems like a foreign language film from time to time. Um, Mr. Falcon. You know, I, I wonder if I, I would just suspect that they like heavily skewed towards movies that had a. Japanese representation in them, possibly at least the first yeah. film, but they're right there in the second, you know. Right. Well, but you said did the did they both did they both get it? You said um, well the well the first one won, but the second one was nominated. Okay. Oh, okay. Right. So they still could have been riding high from the first. It, one. Yeah, they could have yeah. still been. Yeah, like <laughs> all right, you 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 gave us a prop in the first one we'll, we'll we'll give you an honorable mention this time oh, and gosh. and see if see if you come back around to the third film <laughs> with more representation <laughs> and then they went to harlem and i think all the Japanese right. representation. <laughs> right. different different kind of representation in that right. film. um so yeah uh one thing the, the fictional uh nakatomi plaza is actually uh the headquarters of 20th century fox um it is the fox building that they're, that they're, they're shooting at. Oh, wow. And, um, the upper floors were unfinished at the time. So all of those under construction floors, uh, that Bruce Willis is having all these fights in really looked like that. Um, and, and a lot of the props they used to fight, like the rolling dolly cart and the chains and stuff all really there. They were there before they got there and they were there after they left. Um, which I, I found to be pretty, pretty fantastic. Uh, in, in terms of things, so um, so before I, I just continue on dominating uh, the, the conversation here, um, Tim, tell me, um, tell me what your relationship is with the first Die Hard mm-hmm. film. Like it, like when did you get exposed to it? Like you know, does it have any kind of? Because that's the one thing I really want to see if we can talk about tonight a little bit is at least for this first film, how does it d- does it feel different to you? than other action movies or did you maybe or, or does it not i guess i guess it feels different so yeah so i i was late to to die hard it was you know i brought this up a few times in past episodes it's always like a handful of films that everybody's seen except for you and you're kind of i'm kind of embarrassed that i hadn't seen it so i've probably gone into my uh late teens early 20s still never seeing it and um when my wife and i uh, when we were dating, um, we always we never really got into Valentine's Day. It was always kind of this silly. I, I I never really cared so much for Valentine's Day. So we'd get each other gifts, but it was very like just random 
things. And one of the first kind of years we were, had been dating, she, Beth got me like the, I guess at the time it was a trilogy. <laughs> I don't know. Mm. If, I don't think the fourth had come out yet. So she well, got that me. That was like a this, good time to stop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. She got me the, like this DVD, the trilogy box set, you know? I mean, it just it was very random, very kind of just amusing, but um, it was kind of also this reminder of like, oh yeah, I've never seen any of these. And so finally then watched them and, um, and I've seen it a few times since then, but really for a film at that time, I had been probably, um, I guess almost 20 years old, just how it ages so well. It, it, it doesn't feel like a typical generic action movie. There's a lot, a lot to it. And so I've since watching it and even up until now, I really have a fondness for the film. I watched it, you know, in preparation for this episode, maybe a week or so ago. And I was just impressed almost the entire time. Just really impressed by this film. Jared, what about you? Yeah, sort of the same for me. Um, you know, I think most of the movies that we've talked about uh, have, have been ones that I had seen early on. This one's one that I have over the years seen, I mean, basically everything from it, but I don't know if I had ever sat down prior to this and watched it all from start to finish one time all the way through. Um, you know, because, yeah, I mean, I would have been, you know, I guess eight when, when the first one came out, uh, seven or eight. And um, I think what I remember, like, growing up from it is is all my friends, like, in, you know, like, late elementary school, early middle school, stuff like that, talking about it. Um, and... And yeah, it's kind of like what Tim said about like never wanting to be the one that, oh, I haven't seen this, you know. And so it was just kind of like this, ah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's great. Uh, that was a great scene. And <laughs> so that is, that's kind of, you know, what it's always been. And um, so, yeah, it does after a while just turn into this thing where it's like, you, you know, you, you just feel so late to the party that you're just not even going to bother sitting down and and watching all the way from start to finish without some sort of catalyst for it. So um, this was maybe my first time really doing that. Um, but I also like when I, when I went back to school and went to a film program, I remember we, we, this was one of the films that um, was really kind of analyzed in terms of certain elements of the story, which we can get to later. Not, not the really the action part of it, but just kind of the setup for the story. Uh, so, but for me, yeah, I, you know, I think the first one holds up really well. Um, I think it's kind of an all-time action movie yeah. classic. Um, I, and and yeah, I was kind of surprised at at how much how well it did hold up um, in terms of of having um, you know sort of an everyman hero that's a little bit more believable and life likable, at least in in the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then really just kind of what you talked about with like the the whole cast, like uh, yeah. kind of the whole cast, even of the villains, like even of some of the secondary henchmen, you know, having a little bit more, I think, uh, personality and character mm-hmm. than what you get from a lot of action movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. They weren't goons. You know, they weren't like these kind of yeah. disposable people. Right. I, I like right. that. Yeah. And, and even um, even with some of the, you know, Eastern European henchmen, there's sort of an, an affinity there. Even the ones that were a little bit more goon-like, there's yeah. an affinity there for these like cliche '80s um, terrorists, 
you know, yes. that e that either are Eastern Europeans or they're in a rock band, you know, one or the other. <laughs> Spinal uh, Tap. Yeah. Or, <laughs> right. Nakatomi. The flowing, yeah. the flowing blonde hair and all this, you know, they just look oh, like they're yeah. ready to, you know, shred. So, uh, yeah, so the first one, uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's great. Uh, holds up really well. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that we, um, you know, had this as one of the films in order to, you know, give me a, uh, push to watch it yeah um let's talk about john mcclain for a second um because i think one of the things that i love so much about him as a character again we're just speaking about the first film because yeah he kind of i don't know if this is willis if this is the directors if this is the studio but but he he betrays this probably maybe immediately after the first film yeah. Um, you see it a little bit in the third as well, I feel like, because he's out of his element again. Um, so maybe McTiernan is is the is the glue that keeps him grounded. Mm -hmm. I don't the anchor that keeps him grounded, rather. Um, but one of the things I love in retrospect about them putting Willis in this role at this time in his career is if you, if you look at his contemporaries at this time, you have Schwarzenegger, you have uh, mm -hmm. Stallone. Um if you want to look older, you probably got Clint Eastwood or Charles Bronson um, or even characters like RoboCop, you know. Um, none of the action heroes have an ounce of underdog in them. Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of and it reminds me of that. Now, this this was Hollywood gossip, so I don't know if this was true, but. But Jared, I think you might have even brought it to my attention years ago, is where there was apparently some drama on one of the Fast and Furious sets because Vin Diesel didn't want to lose any of his fights or something like that. Yes. Um, and, and maybe it wasn't Vin Diesel, maybe it was somebody else, but I, I want to say it was him that, that at least the story was about. Whether or not that story itself is even true, I don't know. But, but it serves as the example that I want to say. Like, mm -hmm. McLean is a New York cop who is at a California, at a Los Angeles uh, corporate Christmas party. So first of all, being an East Coast person, being just dropped into the West Coast for a social interaction, <laughs> it, I can tell you is awkward enough uh, sometimes, <laughs> yeah. and I'm not even in law enforcement. So, so I, I mean, you know, let alone uh, McLean's character. Um, I mean, it can be uncomfortable enough anyways. Um, and so, so taking that... And then, you know, everything just kind of, you know, literally and figuratively blowing up around him. Um, he is he's a fish out of water, um, but he doesn't go on a rampage like it's mm -hmm. it's it's a it's a survive. It's a fight for survival for him, mm -hmm. you know, um, and not just for him, but for like the other hostages in the building. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I, I think about times where um, like there's this really. Oh gosh, let me scroll up and see that that man's name, Hart Bachner. Um, he plays mm -hmm. one of the other workers in the in the company um, that is like acquaintances with with uh, McLean's wife, and he's just you know just a real slime ball, you know. Um, and he thinks he's going to slime ball negotiate his way out of the hostage situation. And at this point, McLean is on a radio and stuff, and he's lying to Alan Rickman, saying that he, he and he and McLean go way back and they're friends and stuff. And you see real panic on, you know, Willis's face. Mm, he's like, yeah, he's like, 
stop lying to him. Like they will actually kill you. Like, and you know, you see actual, like he doesn't, you know, he, he's, um, Willis does not really play a tough guy in this film, you know, like Mm. at best, I think he plays, um, uh, an underdog, um, being a smart ass trying to sound like a tough guy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it, which, which I mean, like, I think that's, that's cool. Like I, that, cause that's just not, I don't feel like there was anything like that, you know, like there was mm-hmm. no, you know, people, um, you know, we have like the superhero genres now and, and one of the main criticisms of that genre is there's never any stakes, you know, because, you know, when, when, um, the superhero, when the Avengers come into fight, you know, you know, they're going to win or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, and obviously it's an action film, so you get a sense that he's going to survive somehow, probably. But um, at least, you know, hindsight being what it is. But there there was a real there was a real sense of vulnerability with him mm-hmm. as an action hero in that yeah. first film, which I thought was really good. Yeah, I um, it, to me, it felt like they subverted tropes in in a good way mm-hmm. where um you know, there's a lot of talk now about, you know, subverting expectations and subverting tropes. And I think usually that's done pretty poorly or it's done very intentionally in a way like with Indiana Jones, where the gag is that he, he loses every time, you know, I mean, he still manages to come out on top in the end, but basically every little battle leading up to that, he, he pretty well loses. Um, uh, but it felt like with this, they did it well enough in a way where you didn't know exactly how every interaction was going to work out. Like if he was going to be able to, you know, physically outmaneuver the other person, outsmart them, or if he was going to have to get lucky or if he was going to have to get a little bit of help, you know, yeah. and it, and it, and it always felt like to me, they mixed in enough in that first one yeah. where it, it kept it interesting because mm-hmm. you didn't know, like you said, I mean, you, you assumed he was, at the very least, gonna make it to the end, yeah. uh, even if, even if he dies in mm-hmm. the end. Um, but you didn't know in any instance like what it was gonna take for mm-hmm. him to prevail in any situation. Yeah, yeah. Say, I'm, I'd just be repeating both of you, but yeah, I liked the vulnerability and the fact that he did get beat up pretty badly. Like he, he, the course of the film, the entire way was you could tell by the end. I mean, he was just bloody bruise you know he had the, the the you know the scene especially him pulling glass at his feet i mean just really like difficult moments you'd seen he he wasn't like coming out on top he wasn't like this obvious like i'm gonna take them all out like he was doubtful that he was gonna make it i, I really i really think that turning that on its head i think it made for um just a great hope yeah just this real like kind of the whole time he was just in disbelief of what he was going through. And I kind of love that. I kind of like, yeah, that is kind of a crazy situation. And it's neat that the character is like cognizant of that. Like what is going on? Like, this is nuts. You know? So I, I really, I really appreciated that a lot. Um, and you know, Jared, this might, I don't know if this goes to what you were alluding to with your like film class and the storytelling and stuff, but I loved how they, you know, the, the logic in the film is not entirely airtight uh, and they even kind of poke fun of themselves in the documentary about that. Uh, the main thing being like, how did they fit an ambulance in the back of the truck when there's a shot of the back of the truck being empty when they get there. But, um, but they're, they're just like, yes, it's an action movie. Get over it. You know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It was, 
which made me laugh. There's the cell phone on that. But um, but that <laughs> notwithstanding, um, the little storytelling details that contribute to the situation that we get, like yeah. like that conversation he has with that man on the airplane at the beginning of the movie about mm-hmm. as soon as he gets to a place, he takes his shoes off. and like go curls his bare feet on the carpet and that's why he's barefoot is because he's actually trying that guy's advice and that's when everything goes down so that's why he has to face this whole situation barefoot um it's because he followed that guy's advice and it's just such a neat little thing and how that you know just connected to to the other bit and um you know even the bit with uh i mean this is this is not an original little trope but like uh the fact that his wife was given that watch, I think, you know, and yeah. that ends up being kind of, you know, the linchpin at the end that is there of saving grace in a way. Um, just, just, just fun little things like that, 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 that uh, have a callback. You know, I, I love a good callback. Maybe it's the arrested development fan in me. <laughs> I, um, I always appreciate a well, a well, uh, well-earned callback. Yeah, I think it was, um, I think specifically what we were, were talking about in that class was uh, the professor talking about um, the the relationship with his wife and, you know, all the little details of, you know, the watch being one of them, um, even sort of um, the setup from the beginning about uh, just kind of how that lifestyle is so different from from his and what he was back home and how he's, you know, the... A blue collar uh, cop, um, you know, his wife, when he gets there, sort of the reveal that she has um, gone back to her maiden name. Um, basically, it was just kind of going through all these little bits and pieces of setting up that relationship and how, you know, ultimately it's um, a story about a guy winning his wife back um, yeah. and how all those little, you know, how all those little things set it up and and play into that you know and and her at the end like like you said at the end then the watch which you know which was kind of the representation of um you know maybe this temptation to choose that lifestyle and and over over him or whatever and then um at the end she tells someone uh or, or he says i think it's it's even him who says mclean who says yeah this is my wife um you know uh, what, what, holly is it yeah uh, mm-hmm. holly you know Gennaro, and she's like McLean, you know. wow. yeah. <laughs> so just yeah, little little bits and pieces like that, and then real quick, I'll circle back to what you mentioned before about about um, you know Vin Diesel and the Fast and Furious movies. Yeah, I, from what I've read, uh, and I think this is just something that I I read um, is that in in films like that where there's like The Rock and Vin Diesel and you know those two fighting it out. I think it was in the fifth fast and furious movie um that a lot of that is like very carefully negotiated uh i can't remember it maybe even have been in contracts of like how many punches they land versus how many they're taking because these action film stars have this uh kind of like what you're talking about with like if the movie doesn't succeed that you know Bruce Willis's action career or movie career and period might have been over. It, it's sort of the, this fear of them looking weak, and so them therefore needing to very carefully manage how they look in a in a fight scene in a big movie. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that that's one approach, I guess. Um, <clears throat> but 
you know, I mean, that's such a that's such a pro wrestling mentality. Yeah. I, I, right. Like, I can't lose any of my matches, brother. Right. You know, uh, you know, you have the two approaches of maybe if I just have one of the best matches of the night, people will want to keep seeing me wrestle, you know, right. um, which is, you know, what you have with Die Hard. You know, it's it's not it's not him running roughshod over everybody. It's him having you know, and a well-engaged, uh, you know, uh, altercation with so many guys. Um, yeah. You know, you talk about, you know, her going, reverting back to her maiden name is funny too, but that also keeps her alive. Right. For right. the crux of the movie too, because he doesn't, he doesn't know that she's married. Uh, Rickman doesn't know that she's married to him. Yeah. Uh, and that ends up saving her for a long time. So yeah, it's just, again, these, these little decisions, that seem like maybe they're just little nagging arguments between the two of them feed into other plot points, which is just really well written, which honestly is really, um, really a uh, testament because um, something else they said in that movies that made us episode was that the script wasn't finished when they started shooting. Um, They were writing as they were shooting. So, to be that on top of things uh, is is really impressive um, to, to have little moments like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, something else I noticed, I, I'm certainly not the only person to ever point this out, I'm sure. Um, so, so, you know, a, a couple of things, and they have to do with the villains. Uh, first of all, I love um, talking about subversions again, that the unofficial musical theme of the villains was Ode to Joy. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> that that's always seems to play when they're yeah. kind of you know having their even temporary triumphant moments, <laughs> like you know when the vault opens up and when they enter into the building and stuff like that, and, you know these little things, and um you know just you know, you know, classy terrorists. You know, what can you say? <laughs> they are um, classy terrorists. Yeah, but which gets me to the next point is that um the the subversion too that. They're not really terrorists. They're just yeah. common mm. thieves, not common thieves, but but um, that they're really just there to rob the place. Um, but to but end up in order to get what they want, they have to pretend to be terrorists mm-hmm. um, to do it, which is I've never I don't I can't remember the last time. I'm sure that inspired imitators, um, but I certainly can't remember before that. And I, I, I have a hard time thinking of anything after that where someone like subverted down, you know, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, we're being taken over by taken hostage by terrorists. Oh, no, we're actually we're, we're just here to rob the place. Yeah. It's usually like the other way around, you know, like oh, they're thieves. Right. Oh, actually, they're they have a nuclear bomb and now you have a season of 24 or something, you know, like it's right. it's um, so, yeah, I mean, that that felt fresh. And still kind of feels fresh, at least the way that it was executed. Um, it, I'm sure there probably have been imitators, but I don't think I've ever seen it executed as effectively mm-hmm. um, in this film as well. And, and again, I think that goes to the credit of Alan Rickman's performance and the casting of that entire group of guys um, as well. Um, let's see. OK, yeah. Reginald Vale Johnson, uh, Carl, Carl Winslow. Let's talk about Carl Winslow. Oh, um, man, I, I, I love him. By, by the way, just as an aside to everybody, um, if you have Hulu, um, Family Matters is on Hulu. 
um, you know, the show that the sitcom that, that Reginald Val Johnson starred in. And um, if you're like me, you probably look back on that show and you think of it as like the Steve Urkel show. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I cannot and you wouldn't be wrong. Um, but if I can encourage anybody who has the slightest interest in that program to go back and revisit it prior to Urkel taking over, it's a highly underrated sitcom in terms yeah. of how it handled like cultural issues, how um, I'm a big, um, uh, I don't know what I am. Uh, I, it's a big deal to me to see how marriage is portrayed in sitcoms because it's so easy to have like the wife be like this nagging shrill woman and the husband just to be, you know, an idiot. Um, mm -hmm. Homer Simpson basically, mm -hmm. um, or Ray Romano, um, you know, take your pick. Um, but Carl Winslow, I think gets overlooked a lot as a father figure and as sort of a mentor figure, especially yeah. after Earth takes over that show, but he's just as much an uncle Phil and, and, you know, real life criminal charges, mm -hmm. notwithstanding a Dr. Huxtable. Like, I mean, he, he, he's a, an incredibly strong, positive figure. And also, a um, and I'll tie it back to Die Hard now. A positive law enforcement uh, role model as well, mm -hmm. um, and not not just in the show, definitely in the show, um, but but in the film as well. And um, I just I thought it was really interesting to watch this movie in 2020 because I never um, I, like I said, Jared. I don't, I don't know the last time I really sat down and watched it from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. um, but his story is that, you know, he is like uh, you know, Willis, you know, McLean gets out of desperation, manages to to get a distress call, you know, mm -hmm. out to not. And um, what's his name? Oh, God. Now I can't remember. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think now. President's name. Al Powell. Powell. What's his name? Al Powell, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. But anyway, so uh, Powell gets the call because he's the closest cop geographically nearby. And it's because he's trying to buy Twinkies at a convenience store. <laughs> yeah. Like it, it seems like it's setting up such a stereotypical, like useless cop kind of, you know, guy. And he, he springs into action and he is, like you said, Jared, like one of the great uh, positives of this film is the creativity in ways that Willis keeps surviving, which mm -hmm. is sometimes he has outside help. Sometimes he's creative with the environment around him. Sometimes he just gets lucky and escapes, right. you know, and sometimes he straight up kills somebody. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's a little bit of everything. Um, but um, he he has this ongoing radio conversation throughout the film with uh, Powell's character and uh, with uh, Bill Johnson's character. And um, it's revealed because once he realizes he's talking to a cop, they their guards come down a little bit more mm. and they're able to bond a little bit and he asks him like you know oh man you ever see he's like oh so you're a desk cop i guess all this action must be new to you and he tells a story he's like well i wasn't always he's like i, I was and and um he tells a story that he shot a kid and he, he killed a kid um by accident mm -hmm. and he owns that and regrets it and has remorse over it they said i couldn't I couldn't go back out on the street after that. Um, and, you know, you can say, it, you know, there's a part of him that's broken 
in that part. And he's like, you know, I just, I went back to the desk. I, I, you know, I couldn't shake that anymore. And, and Willis, you know, there's a sympathy from Willis in that moment too, you know, yeah, uh, which is really good. And I, I am, um, I, it sucks that I have to say, it's nice to hear a representation of a cop regretting a bad shooting being right, put on right. film, you know, um, because of all the polarization and politicization, politicization of, of everything now, uh, behind incidents like that, mm-hmm. um, for them to just come out and say, yeah, this is what happened. And I'm, I was in, in, and, and I felt that, you know, like, uh, but I, you know, uh, Powell's saying, uh, um, which it turns back around too that they have that sort of jump scare moment at the very yeah. end when you think everything's over with and he gets a sort of a redemptive moment um, at being a good shooter you know um, or having a good shoot a good kill um, as a cop getting to sort of save the day um, which it which is really neat um, <laughs> that be that being said I do have a question uh, for you guys and maybe I'm just being uh, maybe I'm just being silly, um, but I've heard it mentioned before. Um, so, so there's a real, you know, we, we what we would call now a bromance um, <laughs> between John McClane and Al Powell. Do you think that relationship in any way competes or maybe even overshadows the relationship with his wife in that film? Because you got it because, because just <laughs> take yourself to the end of the film when he's leaving Nakatomi with his wife and there's this longing gaze oh. like across the crowd of people and they like all walk towards each other. And it's, it's some real, and I listen, I'm not trying to say that there's more there than, than what there is, but there's some real Frodo Sam yeah. <laughs> end of the return of the King vibes there, yeah, which, right. which is, which is, you know, two brothers going in battle together. I mean, yeah. you, you, you form bonds, but cool. um, the eighties were real, real particular about yeah. the bonds between two men, the, 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 fam, the, uh, the bonds of friendship being stronger than the bond of, of romantic love, right. um, pretty frequently throughout the eighties, um, from well, top gun to karate kid <laughs> to back to the future to die hard. Like mm-hmm. I'm sure yeah. I'm missing more, but you know, what, what, what do you guys think? I, Am I onto something there or like Steven, are you just no, no. running with I think there's something, but this is what I, especially watching this summer, what I kind of read into it, and and this is possibly not what was intended at all. But I was thinking in my mind of how they both kind of worked and and kind of went through this crazy traumatic experience together. And I think a lot of times when that happens, that really kind of bonds you very quickly. And so I I kind of saw that as like we we did we accomplished this thing together and it did kind of bring you know you know not force but kind of create this really close uh relationship so i did i did notice that as well like that long <laughs> the longing look and i kind of i loved it but i love that whole i don't know just the entire film that sort of close it was just it was great it was fantastic yeah i think i just think of it in terms of like sort of going back to a different era where, um, you know, not, not only did men not really talk about feelings and things like that, but especially it was almost, um, seems like a lot of times looked at as sort of a situation where, you know, the, the wife 
was would have been sort of the last one that mm. they could have talked about certain things with oh, too. Yeah. And so and yeah, so kind of yeah. like what Tim what what Tim was saying there, like um, you know, it's almost kind of like this is the closest thing that he could have to sort of like a counseling session or yeah. you know a, a group therapy sort of thing is like this unspoken thing where they've kind of gone through that together and mm-hmm. formed a formed a connection there so yeah, yeah. it is it, it is kind of funny I, I know what you mean what you're talking about um that's I, I think just in the context of it being the 80s um that's what i kind of of thought of it as is just this yeah. different time where you couldn't you know, I mean, his whole thing, I mean, part of his whole thing with his, you know, his wife is just not being able to um, talk about a lot of the, you know, the issues there. And he, he sort of has to process that through um, what's happening. So I, that that's kind of how I read it. And, and you're right. There, there's a lot of ground to make up there with him and his wife. Like they didn't mm-hmm. start that film on the best terms. Mm-hmm. And yeah. him saving her life is not going to, it does not n- demand that she forget all of his trespasses and stuff, yeah. you know, immediately. So there, there's more to work on there. I will say, um, I don't know that this was intentional, but it's just an observation is that, um, that scene is an interesting mirror to when Bruce Willis meets Alan Rickman face to face for the first time, because there's two characters he's continuously talking to over the walkie talkie. Mm-hmm. It's his, his, his friend and his enemy basically. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we as the viewers, which is just a great scene when he confronts Rickman for the first time. Yeah. And neither one of them are absolutely sure, like just for a second, who the other one is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the movie lets you think that Willis still doesn't know who he is. And, you know, they they have this really like it's a brief scene, but this real cat and mouse scene with each other. And it's Mm -hmm. just played so well. And so there's just nothing but tension in that scene, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. in the best way. And so at the end, when he sees, uh, you know, uh, Reggie, Reginald Johnson, it's um, it's like a release. You know, it's like the opposite of tension. It's like, hey, you it's like they see each other like, hey, you mutually can look at each other and say, hey, you're alive. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like you made it. So did you. Great. Because because, you know, from his vantage point. When, you know, they're just wrecking shop on the cops and the FBI and stuff, he doesn't know after a certain point if he's if that guy has made it and and they don't know how, you know, how long McLean has lived either and stuff. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's it's a bit of a release at mm-hmm. that moment. And I think there's a lot to be said there about sort of, you know, brothers and trauma in, in that sense. And and um and surviving that together. Uh, can I say real quick as an aside, this, this um, again, I'm not going to say this is the first movie to do all this stuff. This is the oldest movie I remember that starts out the trope of like, well, I guess I'd have to figure out when Lethal Weapon came out. I can't remember when Lethal Weapon came out, but this is one of the first ones where where there's the one cop who really knows what's going on. Yeah. But like mm. all, the, all the cops that are in charge just are constantly pulling rank and making the dumbest decisions possible. Yeah. It's a real, real prototype of sending all the Gotham city cops into the sewers. You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that was yeah. probably the most annoying part for me is like, I felt like it was grounded, you know, in a lot of ways, but in both movies in one and two, mm-hmm. like they just get so over the top with like oh, dismissing, man. like there's, there's one part where so worse than two, two to me. Anyway. Right. 
Right. Yeah. But yeah. But like even in the first one where, you know, he's talking about everything that happened, um, you, you know, again, for because I can't remember his name, Carl Winslow's sure. uh, character in there. Um, and, and and he's even talking about the guy falling out the window and they're like, oh, that was probably some broker who jumped or something, you know, like so dismissive. Oh, Okay, in most ways, like this is kind of semi, you know, realistic for an 80s action yeah. movie. But when they're like, you know, trying to pass all of these things off, it's like, okay, I don't, we're taking that over the top just a little bit there. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Die Hard uh, made a lot of money. Um, it was the ninth highest grossing film of 1988. Um, I'll just go through the list real quick, not facts and figures, but what finished well, the top 10 of 1988. Uh, so, so interestingly enough, our rate man um, was the highest grossing film of 1988. Also best picture winner at the Oscars. So uh, number two is who framed Roger rabbit. Uh, Eddie Murphy's coming to America was that year. Um, this really surprises me. These next two that they, that they, that they're so high on the list. Mm-hmm. Number four was crocodile Dundee two. Mm. Um, which I remember seeing in the theater actually. Um, and number five was twins with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. Um, Schwarzenegger was just on top of the world back then, man, I guess. Number six was Rambo three. Um, number seven, a fish called Wanda. Number eight, a cocktail, uh, you know, Tom Cruise as the bartender. Um, number nine, uh, Tom Hanks is, uh, sorry. Hold on. Did I say it was number nine? Let me look here again. looks like it's, um, so it looks like nine was big. Tom Hanks is big. And actually it was 10th. It was tied with the naked gun, two different action, kinds of action movies, I guess. Um, they both made 140 million. Although Die Hard made just a little bit more. So, um, anyway, um, a great starting place for, for this franchise, uh, for sure. So, so much so that they decided to do it again, um, two years later with uh, Die Hard 2 um, did not get um, John McTiernan back though uh, John McTiernan was working on another film at the time that you guys may have heard of called The Hunt for Red October um, so he was not available to do Die Hard 2 so they got a director named Rennie Harlan uh, at the time and if you're not familiar with Rennie Harlan I would love to this is the guy that has great movies and well others um, as well um, prior to Die Hard 2, he his biggest film was Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Mm-hmm. Um, he also did uh, Cliffhanger, which ironically was the well, number one, the first R-rated movie I ever saw in the theater. Uh, mm-hmm. And number two, Die Hard on a Mountain, um, yeah. basically. Um, <laughs> he also directed Deep Blue Sea um, in the late 90s. And Jared, he directed 12 Rounds with John Cena. Wow. Um, so wow. you hear all those movies cooped together, you kind of know what we're getting into here. Well, um, and, and and I think I I would just like to hear you repeat the the name of the movie with the subtitle because you uh, Die Hard 2, Die Harder? Yes. 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 Uh. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a tagline. I, I had Die Hard I had forgotten that. Uh, that's that's one thing that I did not remember about that. That it was because I was trying to think like, what is the, is the actual name of the movie Die Die Hard Two? And so when I was you know looking it up, 
Oh, it is. It's Die Hard 2, Die Harder. <laughs> yes. Perfect. Oh, man. Well, listen. Things started, I mean, from the moment they changed directors. Nothing against Rennie Harlan, because I actually really enjoy Cliffhanger, and I enjoyed Deep Blue Sea, too, for what it was. Um, both of those were ripoffs of better films um, in their own way. Um, you know, Jaws and, and Die Hard, basically, but just in different different environments but they were still good for what they are so 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 it, it would stand to reason that he could take a property like die hard and still make something entertaining which i mean he, he does it is entertaining in the same way that home alone 2 is entertaining um which is to say that it is but it just is not the same animal mm-hmm. um so one thing i didn't notice until later this evening when we were, was prepping for the episode guys is that you know we talked about that uh novel nothing lasts forever that die hard was based off of well, Die Hard 2 was also based off a novel, but that novel was in no way related to the previous novels. Oh, wow. In the story. So it would be like it would be like basing a film off of t- The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and the sequel would be based off To Kill a Mockingbird or something. Like <laughs> it's it's so completely like, like like they've just taken the plot. It's this um film it's this novel called 58 Minutes by Walter Wager. Um, the Die Hard 2 is built up where it's basically, you know, an airport is, is held hostage, uh, you know, for, um, basically the plot of Die Hard 2, uh, is what it is. You know, um, they, they have, um, this, this group of terrorists, um, uh, comes in and they take over, uh, Washington Dulles airport, uh, to try to free a political prisoner, um, who's a, like a drug lord or something like that. Um, and, and abscond, you know, with him off, off somewhere. Um, a point of trivia from the first Die Hard that I don't know if I remembered to mention or not, but I find it to be relevant here is that one of the reasons McTiernan, he actually passed on directing Die Hard multiple times before they wore him Mm -hmm. down. And one of the reasons was he said, because this was in the uh, movies that made us episode. And I quote, I don't want to do a terrorist movie. And like he just said over and over again, like people like I don't people don't like terrorists like mm-hmm. I don't want to do a terrorist movie. So that so ended up making them thieves instead. So with that plot twist kind of helped bring him in um, to take over because it was a more interesting story to him. Well, here we just have straight up terrorists. Yeah. Um, and and I think just even that slight um, that slight change and commitment to to what things are on the surface level. Uh, makes you know makes a big difference it makes a big wave you know mm-hmm. um so let's see yeah so bruce willis is back william atherton is back as well as bonnie bedelia um but we have more you know more different cast some notable people dennis franz of uh nypd blue uh notoriety mm-hmm. uh is the nobody all cop this time and um <laughs> And and we we have supplanted one uh, black sitcom father for another. Uh, this time uh, we don't have Carl Winslow, but we have the dad from Good Times instead, uh, John Amos. Uh, this uh, this time around, so really, <laughs> I mean, it's it's not quite Old Man Marley and the Pigeon Lady, but right, but but it almost <laughs> is. Now I wonder if NYPD Blue was going at the time because now I'm starting to wonder if these like TV show cops got their roles. Both of them from the Die Hard movies. Oh, NYPD Blue started in 93. 
So this it would have been yeah. two to three years later. Yeah. So, so it's plausible. Yeah. It could have been both. Interesting. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Huh. Um, f- fun anecdote here. Uh, apparently, the tool company uh, Black and Decker paid to have its cordless drill featured in a scene with Bruce Willis, uh, but the scene got cut from the movie. So um, Black and Decker sued 20th Century Fox in the first ever product placement lawsuit for a film. Uh, it was settled out of court. Um, Which Tim, I, don't only, I, I assume was like him probably drilling it into someone's head. That's probably just... he. Well, you know, there was a scene. I will say, yeah, the fighting in this one a lot more gruesome. Yes. Yeah. Um, the, the deaths and stuff were just a, a feel a bit over the top. Yeah. Oh, did you notice Jared that the T 1000 was one of the terrorists? I caught that. Uh, yeah. That, yeah. Robert Patrick. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, wasn't one guy just like stabbed in the eye with the, yes. Say, the I wonder if that bicycle. was the drill. Man. That, yeah. That's yeah. That's what made me wonder is I think specifically that scene. I was like, I wonder if that was originally a drill or, if it was just a different scene entirely and they're like, uh, I, I bet it was maybe a different scene entirely. And then they're like, well, we already had the guy getting stabbed through the eye. Do we really need the guy drilled yeah. through the temple too? You know, <laughs> and it's like the icicle is more uh, creative. Let's, let's stick with right. that. Right. Um, so, you know, we mentioned McTiernan was doing Hunt for Red October. So, you know, you couldn't commit to Die Hard 2. Rennie Harlan was hired by Fox after they were impressed by the dailies of a film called The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, which, listen, before I tell you about that film, I don't know why, but sometimes in your life, you have these really, or maybe you, maybe not you, but but I do, have these incredibly random, useless, trivial memories of like something you saw on TV one time or something. (laughs) I remember trailers for that movie because... Even as a kid, it seemed kind of stupid. Um, and it was starring, get ready for it, Andrew Dice Clay. It was a yeah. detective movie starring Andrew Dice Clay um, that the studio must have been so impressed with that they offered him the sequel to a $140 million grossing movie. Um so that's how Rennie Harlan uh, ended up with Die Hard 2 oh. because of the Adventures of Ford Fairlane, which um, currently has a 6.5 rating on IMDb and a 28% on Rotten Tomatoes. So um, take with that what you will. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, you know, f- for everything we say, um, it did actually make more money than than Die Hard uh, did, but looking at the year of 1990, um, which we actually looked at that um, during the Home Alone episode, uh, because this was the same year that Home Alone was the second highest grossing movie. Mm. Um, Die Hard 2 was actually the seventh highest grossing movie film, wow. but it looks like just traffic to the box office was way higher um, in 90 than it was in 88 yeah. because in 88, the highest grossing film rain man made $354 million. Um, that would have been, um, that would have been fifth place in 1990. Mm. Um, ghost home alone, pretty woman dances with wolves, total recall back to the future three 
Die Hard 2. Don't laugh for those of you who might be tempted to laugh at this next one, but the three of us will understand. The first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film. Nice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Kindergarten Cop, the highest grossing independent film of all time at that time, by the way, if we ever get to do an episode on that. Um, but yeah, the, the new line uh, Ninja Turtles film was the ninth highest grossing film. That made $200 million itself. Um, and Die Hard 2 made $240 million. So um, yeah, so it certainly made its money back. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, let's talk, tell, tell me guys, like, I mean, I think we're all in agreement that we all pretty much unilaterally prefer the first film to the second one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me what it is for you guys, Jared, tell me what it is that, that is lacking in the second film that, that, that was in the first film or, you know, what, what's swinging you in that direction? Uh, so I, I'll start with one positive and say that coming off of us watching Home Alone 1 and Home Alone 2 back-to-back, <laughs> I at least could appreciate a certain amount of variance in this one mm. from the first one. Like it, yeah. like, it wasn't like the first one where I'm just like, okay, this is it just beat, beat for beat. beat. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. So that, that that is one positive that I'll give it. They did, in some ways, try to, you know, do some different things. Um, you know, for me, like, I, you know, I think just the the setting um worked better in the first one you know for him to just be isolated you know it was basically for the most part him against uh all those guys you know here it was sort of you know it was just a completely uh completely different setup completely different setting it wasn't really just him against them and um there was there was more you know separation there with them too like they would pop in and out of you know sort of scenes to to fight him um and you also didn't have any as much of um you know in the first one you got more interaction with him and hans on the radio and him and and carl winslow on the radio whereas there, there was still a certain amount of that but a lot of it was sort of him talking to himself at times yeah. you know i mean i mean you yes. had some of that in the first mm-hmm. one but it was a lot more of him talking to himself and and a lot of times it would just be like like hanging a lantern on something you know mm-hmm. like like he goes down to the basement of the airport and he says something to the effect of like basically he's he's hanging a lantern on the fact that it, this is the same thing happening to him again and he's mm-hmm. like how oh, it's crazy that this happens to a guy again yeah. um like yeah okay um uh, so uh, it, you know, it's just certain things like that. I mean, um, uh, you know, even like the, you know, the danger of, of his wife, like his wife very much in, in the first one, you know, always, always seemed in danger. This one, um, of course there was that moment at the end, but it just didn't, it didn't feel, um, it didn't feel yeah. the same to me there. Um, the danger was, I don't know, maybe a little bit more spread out this time. So mm-hmm. Um, and, and obviously you didn't, um, Alan Rickman was such a great villain in the first one, such a charming villain. Um, and, and there was just no way to really replicate that, that here. And most of the other, even like we said with the first one where you had these, um, henchmen, you know, secondary bad guys that in a lot of cases also came off sort of endearing in a way or had their own personality distinct personality in a way here a lot more of them seem to just kind of 
blend together for me. So, yeah. um, so I'll, I'll give it a, you know, I won't put it at like home alone two level, but, uh, <laughs> that's part of it. And then, uh, and, and like you said, it, it was just so much more over the top. Like, I think one, one other thing that really bothered me is like, it seemed from the first one to the second one, he was way like way too comfortable too quickly in this one yeah. you know yeah, he was yeah. like too too much of a like oh i've been here before like yeah if i had done that in the first one and then it happened again i don't know that i would have been that much more like oh yeah back in you know old times back in this <laughs> another again. Like, christmas in the trenches <laughs> yeah. maybe maybe by the third movie yeah you can kind of start to to be self-referential and, and mm-hmm. all that but this one yeah. it just seemed like way too quickly here and and when in the first movie that was so much of what endeared me to that character of like uh, you know he's not a chuck norris arnold schwarzenegger type when Mm -hmm. when he kind of starts playing more like that in this one it's uh you know it it doesn't land for me quite as much and then i guess maybe the last thing was just um some of the you know just the uh, over the top um you know action stuff like you know you mentioned um beforehand the, the 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 this version of the the nuke the fridge moment and yeah. i'll i'll hold off uh, and see if we're all on the same page we'll, on that but we'll there was there yeah there was there was a definite uh nuke the fridge moment and i remembered it as soon as he started doing it i'm like i remember this from the trailers and everything you know from the movie originally so uh i kind of got a, a chuckle out of that but um yeah it was just Again, not Home Alone 2 level, but it was very, very forgettable. And especially, like, I watch them today back-to-back. And so that's mm. probably also the worst way to watch uh, them. It's it the just worst feels... way to watch Die Hard 2. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So that did not do it any favors. Like, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, if, if I had seen this in the theaters and then you know two years later whatever was watching this one it wouldn't be so mm. it wouldn't stand out quite so much yeah. but um that's that's i guess the main points for me yeah tim um wh- where does it fall yeah. short for you yeah uh, so, so a lot of this is going to be repeating jared yeah i, I agree I, I feel the same way about the scenery one thing i did appreciate is, is the different setting different location but i felt like they still had that thing kind of like home alone 2 where like it wasn't as as egregious as Home Alone 2, but there were several things where they felt like, oh, this really worked in the first film. Let's do yeah. this again. Like the it, like the in the first one we talked a little bit about like how just nobody cared about his his plight, you know, calling nine one one. Nobody either believed him or just gave a you know, they just kind of ignored him. And I and it it was kinda of, I mean, it was kind of odd in the first one that sometimes you were like, Okay, why would nobody be concerned? And the second one, I feel like doing it all over again, it just, it it felt, I don't know, it just felt like, okay, they thought this worked well. Here, he's the guy that he has to convince everyone that there is a big problem. And, you know, and even this time, they're like, hey, you're that guy from Nakatomi Plaza who saved all, you know, all the stuff. Oh, what do you Listen, know? Mr. Fancy Los yeah. Angeles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. You don't know anything. It's like, at first, they're recognizing, like, wow, you went through this crazy event, but who are you? You know? And so I, that kind of bugged me, but those similar things like that, where they felt like maybe it worked in this first one, let's kind of do it over again. And it just felt really flat. Um, yeah, the Vic, the, like you said, the villain was just not, I mean, it wasn't Alan Rickman and there wasn't even this, like, I, I loved 
in the first one the tension between the two even though they it took a while for them to meet they were still in dialogue together in this one yeah when did they you know maybe the last fight scene i'm trying to remember now but um yeah there was just so little interaction so little kind of like build up to their confrontation um yeah there was just it just i feel like there's a lot of different ways that it just fell short wasn't again like jared said not home alone two level fall short but just yeah forgettable kind of over the top at times i still really liked bruce willis even though he had those moments of like saying stuff yeah he's on his own out loud like man what you know like like kind of telling the audience what you know kind of filling in those gaps but um i still but i still liked him i still felt somewhat kind of like the the vulnerable like you know he got again it's like the first time he got pretty beat up throughout the film and so there was that element of he still was kind of an underdog maybe not as much so but so i still liked him but yeah it just it just wasn't wasn't the first at all you know um the villains this time around was one of my biggest gripes now listen alan rickman was basically a a once in a lifetime villain experience i mean i enjoyed jeremy irons a lot in the third film as well as the villain um but this time around first of all i don't care who you are um when you when you're introducing your your villain to the film with (laughs) with naked karate um yeah i'm not intimidated in the right way um uh for this film it's it's uh it's weird um just just a weird choice which apparently came straight from the director by the way he thought it would be effective um so so that that was a choice that was made um and then jared you'll hopefully you'll appreciate this analogy there were so many plot twists Hmm. towards the end i felt like i was watching like old episodes of wcw nitro like when (laughs) somebody would would turn heel and join the nwo like halfway through the movie like Oh, is this the main bad guy? Oh, oh, well, turns out mm. this guy is also right. a bad guy. And mm. I'm like, okay, well, which one of you is the one that's supposed to die at the yeah. end? Right. Because like, because <laughs> yeah. cause there, there were three, what felt like three simultaneous primary antagonists. Like, mm. you know, I didn't feel a real chain of command there yeah. by, by the climax of the film. And then it turns out yeah. it was just the first villain all along. And I'm like, but you aren't even the head guy in charge. Yeah. Like, right. I, so I felt really, I don't know, confused by that. Like it would have been like, I know that, you know, the blonde ballet dancer is the, is the last one to die uh, out of the bad guys. But, but, but you're never felt like, like, again, he feels like an epilogue, you know, mm. like a, like a jump scare yeah. um, when he dies. And McLean is not even the one who kills him, you know? Right. So, I mean, so like, but you believe that you know it's it's rickman all the way in the first film i'm like it's it's clear yeah. and when he dies it's satisfying i'm so glad i said that because i forgot to, to leave out a story about rickman's death scene so uh this is terrifying and i felt horrible for him but apparently when he was dropped um they told him they were going to drop him on three and they dropped him on one uh. on purpose so the face that you see on film is legitimate 
fear <laughs> and terror in Alan Rickman's face. And um, when they said that, you know, in the documentary, they cut to like an old like YouTube interview with Alan Rickman, you know, prior to his passing, may he rest in peace. And he just said really coyly and the only way he can say it, he's like, yeah, they made sure that was the last shot they took for me. Like that, that was the last shot I filmed for the movie. Um, Cause they knew that I wasn't going to do anything else after right. that. Um, just so good. Um, oh. But anyway, you know, so per- performed so well, so satisfying and, you know, at the end, yeah, so there, this, <laughs> you talk about kind of going back to the well of things. He really does turn into, starts to turn into a Stallone or a Schwarzenegger here. Not all the way, mm-hmm. but he's taking steps. Yeah. Um, that will, And uh, he's laying at the end of the film. First of all, we're, let's get into two fun, illogical movie moments mm-hmm. here um we'll save the best for last um is but before that is the very last action piece which is the plane is getting away w- mm-hmm. with all the villains on it and he has mm-hmm. been kicked off the plane which i have to admit i was a little zoned out um doing something else during the scene because the film wasn't really holding me that much so i honestly believed for a good two and a half minutes that he was having hand-to-hand combat on a plane that was in the air and i was like i was like this is absurd i cannot believe this and then when he gets kicked off the wing of the plane and the runway is like right there i'm like okay all right we're not at tom cruise levels of insanity yet um Although, but, how fast was that plane going even on the ground? For the trail because, of flames to catch up? Yeah. So I well, saw it. And just even for him to be able to, because imagine, I mean, if, if it's going 100 miles an hour, it's like yeah. 100 mile hour winds mm-hmm. blast any, anyway, anyway. Yeah. Well, there's a whole episode <laughs> of Mythbusters about that idea in the movies yeah. anyways, of, yeah. of the trail of flames catching up to the gas tank. Yeah. And will oh, it cause wow. an explosion? Um, yeah, which is which is really fun, by the way. Um, but there he is, alone on the runway, not a person in sight yeah. with an air shot. Mm-hmm. And what does he say? Yippee ki yay, Mr. Yeah. Falcon. You know, yeah. and awesome. yep. And I just roll my eyes so hard because here's the thing: it's a corny catchphrase. Okay, it, yeah. it is. But in the context of the first, when he says it in the first film, he and Rickman are having this battle of wits, and they're talking about cowboys. Yeah, right. So like it, it is corny even then, but it, but it fits. Yeah. Like it it's worked. on topic. Yeah, and Rickman was kind of making like, oh, you're like a Royal Rogers, you know, kind of oh, making you're fun a of him. Cowboy. And yeah. so he mm-hmm. turns it on him like yippee ki. You know, right. it was exactly. corny, yeah. but like perfect. It worked yeah. so well. Yeah, this time he's. On. No one's listening, <laughs> except for the audience. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's rough. Everybody chill. That's us about us. We're, we're in Mr. Freeze. <laughs> yeah. Corny All right. So, yeah. So, yeah. Corny, corny climax, uh, you know, improbable even for an action movie. But let's nuke the fridge. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, he didn't just cross the line. He nuked it. Yeah. He. Um, oh. John McClane at a penultimate 
uh, one of the penultimate action scenes seems to have all the villains cornered, but he gets ends up getting locked into a uh, um, cockpit uh, that then gets shot up with machine guns, which granted it's a military plane. So right. I'll, I'll go with you on that trip yeah. that none of the bullets got him. But the but the windshields get knocked out and they drop. I want to count oh, what man. four four grenades yeah. <laughs> in there. And I, at least he, like I know there were three. It seemed like there were three initially and then anywhere from like one or two more. Yeah. So here's the problem. <laughs> and you know what? Maybe it's not fair of me to import real world logic into this. But he doesn't even move to scramble until like the fourth grenade hits the ground. Mm-hmm. Right. So three of those grenades have been in there for about four or five seconds. Yes, I Googled it because that's the kind of person I am. (laughs) A typical grenade will detonate between two and six seconds. Yeah. So not only do like four or five grenades drop in this this, um, cockpit, after about the fourth grenade drops, he gets up, runs over across the cockpit to an ejector seat, Mm-hmm. fastens the seat yes, belt yes, yes. <laughs> and then hits eject just as things are about to detonate yeah. and the shot oh my goodness that shot yep. yeah. the shot of him rising out of the fire and the ejector seat is just too much I'm surprised I'm yeah. almost surprised that we didn't get a yippee cat IA Mr. Falcon at the peak of that, you know, yeah. in, instead of what he says. Like, I yeah. feel like that would have fit better. Yeah. He could just look right into the camera. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> oh, yeah. 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 Listen, I was on the I was on the fence with a lot of the movie, but then that was the definite moment. I'm like, OK, yeah. Well, well, it's been nice watching this movie. I'm checked out now. Yeah. <laughs> like. It was, uh, yeah, it was a lot. So anyway, uh, you know, I don't want to be too hard on it. Listen, it is, I think the reason it feels so disappointing is because maybe it was, it was even unintentional, but they set themselves a really high bar with the first movie. And I don't know that they were trying to, but they did. And then the next movie is just... Oh man, I, I mean the the phrase "paint by numbers" is 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 really, um, you know, a, a, a typical term that's used a lot, but it really does seem to be the case in this time. It's like, mm-hmm. let's just connect the dots and hit these main story points like we always do, and yeah. and that's it, you know. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, and and I think this this movie is a problem in Hollywood in a sense, because granted, yeah, the movie's 30 years old now. Um, but it's a great example of what's wrong is that it's a follow-up to a legitimately successful, legitimately high quality, um, film. And so people flock to see it because they want to see the follow-up. It doesn't measure up, but it ends up making almost double what the first film did. So the message that gets received is, well, let's do more of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah. then the cycle keeps going, you know? Yeah. yeah. Ugh. Oh, well. 
<laughs> so Die Hard 2 is on HBO Max <laughs> if, you, if you'd like to see it. Um, the first Die Hard film is also there. Uh, your opinions on whether or not it's a Christmas film are completely up to you. Um, but uh, we we certainly recommend the first Die Hard film, and we're not the first and won't be the last to recommend it. Die Hard 2, um, I mean, if there's nothing else on, by all means, it's it's entertaining. It's not, yeah, and I should say this about this and Home Alone too. Like, like they're not bad films. It's just, you know, they both, I think, carry with them the bad luck of being paired in these episodes with a much mm-hmm. better with a much better predecessor, you know, right. um, uh, it, there, there are f- many, many worse films in the yeah. world <laughs> right. um, than both of those. Um, but it is a bit disappointing. And I will say this, at least for the Die Hard franchise, it bounces back right after that with Die Hard and a bit with a vengeance, which is, a, which is a great um, third film as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, any, we, any oh, last Go ahead, Tim. I, I guess no. Sorry, I jumped in before you asked. Yeah, this might be a good last thing. One, one. I will say one quibble about both films, but I feel like in the second was like taken way too far. I I just did not care at all about the reporter that the TV reporter guy. I yeah. the oh, first yeah. one was annoying, but it wasn't in it that much. But I feel like the second one just taking it away from like the action to what he's doing on the plane. I just it, yeah. I, I didn't care at all. I did not. Need I just that. felt like there's this long setup to pay off um, <laughs> oh. his wife knocking yeah. him out. Again. Yeah, like taser you know, again. Right. Yeah, <laughs> which was, I mean, which was really satisfying. Yeah. In yeah. the first film, because he was, you know, go back to the first film again, like his character. Then that was a legit scumbag yeah. Like 20, 2020 cable news, I could see that happening. Yeah, right. Them going mm-hmm. yeah. to his house and broadcasting it on TV while the hostages are still there. Yeah. Being mm-hmm. like, can we get a quote from your children right now? On, oh, you know, yeah. You know, just to be on it. Like, that kind of was ahead of its time. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I, I think, and it, sadly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, now he's just like, oh, this might be the last message I and, and and he uses it to induce panic in the airport and everything. Yeah. And anyway, it's just uh, uh, yeah, yeah, didn't ring as true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jared, any any last words on on Die Hard? Um, I think we covered. Uh, I think we covered it. I mean, we and we mentioned, um, you know, of course earlier or just offhand like we did get the the great i do appreciate the great tv dubbing it's one of my top three favorite tv dubbings like along with maybe top two are it and um in the matrix where neo says uh something the effect of uh your own personal judas priest (laughs) uh so this the yippee yippee kaye mr falcon and that one yeah. are, are probably they're at least in my top three, if not my top two of all yeah. time classic Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame <laughs> you know, dubbings. Yeah. 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 For yeah. sure. Live forever. First ballot Hall of Famers, those two. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh well, I wanna uh thank our listeners for uh coming along for the ride with us uh for Die Hard and Die Hard Two, Die Harder. Um both available on HBO Max, as we said before. Um, really hope you guys have a Merry Christmas and an awesome holiday. Hope you guys are staying safe and um, making wise decisions and also uh, 
trying to celebrate as best you can. Uh, obviously, it is difficult for everybody right now, but just uh, keep the faith, hang in there, and do your best. Uh, we will be back, Lord willing, that we have a time to get together uh, in the next week um, to do a little bit of a retrospective um, as, our, as our plan. I mean, not a particularly long or detailed one, but just maybe revisiting the fact that we, that, you know, it, particularly Tim and I, since we started back in, in March and April and Jared joined us about halfway through the year, um, making it through almost a whole year of night cheese um, out of nowhere because of COVID. Um, and, and, and now we have a thing going. So it's, it's been really fun. And so uh, um, my plan is uh, if we get a chance to hang out next week, guys, just to maybe talk about some past episodes and, and maybe if there has been stuff you've seen because of, because of our show or just stuff that you've seen this year that you just want to give a quick shout out to like, Hey, I'm, you know, this is a movie I saw for the first time this year. And, and now it's one of my favorite movies. We, we all know it won't be Die Hard 2, but, you know, it mm-hmm. could be uh, <laughs> something else. Um, so anyway, that, that's um, my penciled-in plan for next week, if that's cool with you guys, uh, unless something nice. else comes alive that we, can, that we can do instead. So anyway, for the rest of you guys, have a wonderful holiday. And uh, until next time, uh, keep working on your night cheese, Mr. Falcon. Well, we already had the guy getting stabbed through the eye. Do we really need the guy drilled through the temple, too? <laughs>